0: We are certainly always delighted that God has blessed us with the opportunity to assemble. So many individuals in the world, in fact, on this very night would meet in a very more rigid and severe way than you and I do. Perhaps under threat, perhaps under a great deal of adversity, and yet you and I can meet with the freedom of this particular hour and do so, recognizing that it's a joy, isn't it, to come together to offer our heartfelt worship and praise unto God. In fact, if I might go ahead and say that uh, please be making plans, if at all you can be with us Wednesday evening when we'll continue a study of the Revelation, the 66th and last book in the Bible, and what a beautiful book of encouragement. Last Wednesday evening we gave some thought to at least some reasons as to why that book can can be a challenging book, sometimes even a misunderstood book. But we use those seven reasons to motivate us, and we'll start in chapter 1 Wednesday night, looking at in an overview way some of the beautiful teachings to be found in that book. But for tonight, what about Joppa? To turn our attention to an interesting city of Old Testament lore, a city that will have much to teach you and me tonight about not only the geography of it, but also human choice and human will. And so as we begin our lesson tonight by way of introduction, let's do so in the following way. You'll notice on this slide, I would ask you to consider how so frequently the Word of God puts before the hearers not only in the ancient era, but you and me today. The Word of God, of course, was inspired, and it comes before you and me, and it puts a powerful message. There is a God in heaven. This is His will, and He expects us to be dutiful stewards of it. And so look at the last part on that slide. God doesn't force anybody. He will allow us to make our own choices. We'll see that so clearly tonight as we study, oddly enough, the city of Joppa. But the second point at the last part of that slide, there's even occasions when God puts that truth before us in very memorable ways, not only by way of individuals, but by way of events in certain geographical locations. And so without any further ado, if you please, why don't we turn our attention then and look first of all at the city of Joppa itself. Where was it located? And what kind of interesting things took place in its environs? You'll notice at the top of that slide, it was a city that in fact was mentioned on several occasions in the Word of God. You may notice it was situated about 35 miles from Jerusalem. It was more or less westerly from there. And in fact, I might even pause and make a quick movement to a map and we'll revisit this slide in just a moment. You'll notice on that map, if you'll focus the spotlight of your vision over to the far left, if you're able to read that word, you'll notice the word Joppa right next to the Mediterranean Sea, five letters right near the middle of that map going bottom to top. Joppa, you notice, was a seaport town. In fact, it was known for that. Many traders and mariners in the ancient world would ultimately unload their vessels at Joppa. And from Joppa, often matters were conveyed inland by way of mules and caravans, perhaps even chariots and things like that. But Joppa was a major trading center, not only for commerce on the ocean, but certainly as I mentioned, carrying commerce even inland. You'll notice not only that in terms of Joppa, It was not only a geographical matter of importance, but let's go back to the previous slide. Some of the other places that that city was mentioned take you to verses like these. In Joshua 19 verse 46, after the land of Palestine had been conquered by Joshua and the other members of that group, they began to divide up the territory, and as they did so, Joppa was mentioned In fact, it was a border city given to the inheritance of the tribe of Dan. Finally, you'll notice one more thing. Given its location on that map that you saw a moment ago, Joppa was located in a very treacherous place for, for at least this reason. The Philistines owned that territory just to the south of them. And so Joppa was often a city that was under siege in that the Philistines wanted it. Having a seaport, you see, was a very useful thing in the ancient world. It gave you command and power, and it gave you the opportunity for business. And so, given its location near the Philistines, they, in fact, conquered and controlled this city more than once in the ancient era. But now, as you and I come to these more positive remarks, what about the days of Solomon? If you notice 2 Chronicles 2 verse 16, Solomon by that point had gained control, his father David had passed on, and Solomon had a tremendous building program. You and I might remember the noteworthiness with which he strove to construct and to build the tabernacle, what you and I would recognize as the temple. We might ask, where did the building supplies come from? 2 Chronicles 2.16 tells us many of them were shipped in to Joppa and carried inland over to Jerusalem where Solomon's workers used those particular matters to construct that temple. When you and I remember the sheer amount of materials required, no wonder the observation is made how significant it was that Joppa was a nearby seaport town In Ezra 3, verse number 7, one more time, mention is made of this place, wherein we notice, again, carrying matters to the people of God from the nearest seaport town, which was, in fact, at Joppa. I say all of that to say, let's approach the bottom of the slide. The geography is not the reason I came to share with you about Joppa. As I studied about this, it became very intriguing to me, the other lessons from the city, far more significant than just these. And so let's proceed past that map and see what some of those might be. And so we immediately come to the man named Jonah. If you would come in the Old Testament with me to one of those minor prophets, the prophet named Jonah. Now even as we begin to consider that particular little four-chapter book... Isn't it impressive to recollect rather immediately the overall thrust of the prophets? The prophets declared the Word of God to the people of that day primarily. God urged those individuals to change, to repent, to serve the Lord. A very small percentage on the whole of the prophets' work was really foretelling the distant future. That certainly was an important part of their work, admittedly. But you'll notice the following development. The prophet Jonah labored in the time of Amaziah, who was one of those kings in the ancient era. And you may notice that in Jonah 1, verses 2 and 3, God gave a very specific message to Jonah. Jonah, you go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach against it, for their cry has come up to me. Fascinating, isn't it? To highlight the integrity and the fact that God had a desire and a will that these heathen individuals might come to hear and that they might come to know the word of the Lord. Now to some extent that almost sounds surprising. You and I have so often heard of the fact God had His chosen people and that He did. Those Israelites, those Jews, those children of Abraham through Jacob. But here were heathen peoples. The Ninevites weren't Israelites And yet God had a love for them. He had an earnestness and a desire that they too might hear the words necessary for their repentance. And thus He commissioned Jonah. Jonah, you go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. Jonah was commissioned to preach with fervor, to preach with enthusiasm, and to preach with hardness. Aren't you thankful that God's Word is straightforward and strict? God doesn't if you'll pardon that phrase, beat around or dance around the bush. Wasn't it true that Jesus directly told Nicodemus, here was a man who came to him and complimented him. We know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these things thou doest except God be with him. John chapter 3 verse 2. And yet the first words out of the Lord's mouth, you've got to be born again. Now some may paint the Lord as very strict, very rigid, very unbending, and uncompromising. Here was a man who, in fact, had come and his first words were complimentary. Couldn't you at least share something complimentary? Maybe it could be argued the Lord did it. He gave Nicodemus the most needful message that that man could ever have heard. In fact, as he elaborated on it, he pointed out in verse 5 of John 3 that it involves being born of water and the Spirit. Keeping that in mind, let's revisit Jonah. As you and I well remember, that commission was not only heard by Jonah, but he understood it well. He knew exactly what was told to him to do, and he knew where he needed to go, the city of Nineveh. Now, when you and I remember, Jonah lived in the Palestine area, and so it was quite a journey to proceed over to where Nineveh was. Let's look at another map. This map paints the following picture. I tried to highlight in it some features that point out a very interesting lesson. You'll notice at the bottom part on the right was basically where Jonah was living. And if you look up at the dashed line over much further to the right is where Assyria was. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. God was telling Jonah, you go to your political enemy. You preach to them, you urge them, you admonish them, you motivate them and tell them that the God of heaven has a message for them. They've got to repent or they'll perish. And if they don't, in 40 days, this city will be destroyed. That was strong. 40 days is all Nineveh had. At this point, you and I will remember, though, what Jonah's initial reaction was. God told him to go to Nineveh, sure enough. And yet on that same map, you'll notice that Joppa is highlighted. For the first thing that Jonah did was he proceeded to go to Joppa, and he boarded a ship. Immediately you and I might wonder, you couldn't take a ship to go to Nineveh. At least nothing easy. Look at the other dashed line. If you follow that dashed line over to what would be your left, as far left as Jonah could possibly go. In that day and time, it was the border of the known world. You'll notice Nineveh is to your right, and that's where God told Jonah to go, but Jonah was interested in traveling as far left as he could travel. Keep in mind, God told Jonah, you go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah went to Joppa, boarded a ship, headed for Tarshish. It was again at the very edge of the known world. Immediately you and I noticed something about what Joppa did, or rather what Jonah did. Let's go back to the previous slide. And I quote, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. God gave him a message and he gave him a commission and he willfully and deliberately disobeyed it. He willfully and deliberately traveled the opposite direction with an absolute desire not to do what God told him to do. We learned something dramatic initially then about Joppa. What was it that prompted Jonah to react this way? We really don't learn that lesson until the fourth chapter of the book, but there it's painted very clearly Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Because they were his political enemies and he didn't want them to be saved. He wanted them to be lost and he knew that the God of heaven was gracious, merciful and loving and if they repented that God would forgive them. And he did not want them forgiven. That's strong, isn't it? Here was a prophet of God, one whose heart you might have thought would be made in the very nature of God, but it wasn't. God loved those people in that He wanted them to change their ways and to repent. But Jonah didn't want them to repent. He didn't want God to forgive them. He didn't want them to be saved. You and I today must certainly think with great care. If we don't love individuals, if we don't want them to be saved, are we like God would wish us to be? Are we behaving as God would want us to behave? We'll continue our saga, but as we close that slide, when Jonah boarded that ship headed for Tarshish, you'll remember that he was waylaid very carefully in chapter number 2 because you remember he ended up spending some time in the belly of a great fish. Of course, there's an interesting record that leads up to it. Let's paint that picture somewhat briefly in the following way. As Jonah was aboard that ship headed for Tarshish, a great storm developed on the sea. It was boisterous, and the mariners, though they tried to maintain the stability and the direction of the ship, they were having great difficulty doing it. Finally, they came to appreciate this. Everybody on board needs to pray to his or her God that they may look with favor upon us. And can't you almost picture the humor? They come to Jonah, pray to your God that he, he may in fact look with favor upon us. And they begin to ask some questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what's your occupation? Can you imagine the blushed look on his face when Jonah had to say, I'm a prophet? Well, what are you doing here? Your God told you to go to Nineveh and you're running away from Him? And yet Jonah did tell them the truth. They ultimately threw Jonah overboard. Because Jonah admonished them that you must do this because it is for my cause that this tragedy, it's for my cause this danger has come upon you. They threw him overboard and as you and I remember, God prepared something. Not only did God prepare the great wind earlier in that same chapter, He prepared the great fish too. There's another lesson in that for each of us. God prepares a lot of things to capture our attention to shake us and wake us up and cause us to realize that there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to avoid. And may you and I realize the nature of living with wisdom and insight and prudence. Who is wise and he shall understand these things, prudent and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them, but the foolish shall fall therein. To borrow the wording of Hosea 14.9. Maybe in fairness, as you and I journey on that, you might come with me to chapter 3. It is true that God ultimately commanded the the fish and it spat or vomited Jonah out on the the dry land. And one more time, God came to Jonah with a message. Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. To put it in the words of Jonah 3 verse 2, Preach the preaching which I bid thee to preach. That's surely one of the finest Old Testament passages about preaching. Preach what God tells you to preach. And so it was that Jonah this time went to Nineveh. He didn't delay, he didn't procrastinate, he didn't sidestep the matter. He went directly and immediately to Nineveh. Chapter 3, verses 3 and following detail that when he preached, they responded with gratitude and they responded with intense repentance. From the king, the great one of the empire, even all the way down to the animals. Even the people who lived there brought the behavior of the animals in light of beseeching God that he might show favor and patience toward them. They repented and God spared them. The very thing that Jonah didn't want is what God did and Jonah knew that God was gracious and he knew that God was merciful and forgiving. Aren't you thankful that God's merciful and forgiving? Aren't you thankful that there is a God in heaven who understands our failures, but He doesn't tolerate them? And when you and I in repentance and in urgency and with a contrite heart will turn to Him, He will forgive. His Son came to die on a cross to document that truth. May you and I never think that we can do anything that cannot be forgiven. It can be. There is no sin the blood of Christ cannot forgive. There is no attitude, no behavior, no choice that the God of heaven, through the blood of His Son, cannot forgive. With that in mind, let's close that slide like this. As that book closes in chapter number four, Jonah begins to pout. It is one of the most interesting scenes, it seems to me, in all the Old Testament. Here was a city of 120,000 people. They had repented. You would think the prophet would rejoice. You would think that he would be in a position to celebrate, but he wasn't. God brought a great gourd tree to grow up while Jonah was sitting there watching what would happen to the city. And Jonah enjoyed the shade that he enjoyed beneath the gourd tree. But not only did God prepare the wind and not only did He prepare the great fish and not only did He prepare the gourd tree, He also prepared a worm that ultimately destroyed the gourd tree and Jonah didn't have his shade anymore. And he pouted. Are you and I willing to pout? When we don't get our way and things don't happen the way we would prefer, do we pout? Do we sulk up? If we do, we're not a person of God. Do you ever remember a single instance when Jesus pouted? We don't have time to pout. There's too much work to do for the cause of the Lord, isn't there? And too much to appreciate in terms of the good blessings He has given us. For every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variable and is neither shadow of turning. The Israelites were all forgiven to complaining, murmuring, whining, And in Numbers 11, beginning in verse 1, "...God brought a great tempest among them to the point that many of them died." And aren't we told in Philippians 2, verses 14 and following, to not be given to complaining? Maybe in light of that, you'll notice we learned something dramatic about Joppa and what happened there. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, but He did allow Jonah to make His own choice— And Jonah chose to go to Joppa and to flee from the commission that God had given him. He chose to try to go to Tarshish. What a dramatic lesson about the opportunity that's ours. God lets us make the final decision. If you'll hold those thoughts in mind, though, I would invite you to look at another scene in the Bible wherein Joppa played a significant role, and then we'll come at the end of the lesson and bring all this back together one final time. The next one's the Apostle Peter and his relationship to the city of Joppa. Would you journey with me to Acts chapter 9? The lesson text that was read a moment ago was taken from that chapter, and in it, we have the opportunity to see one more time the placement and an interesting event at Joppa. I would invite you to start in the following way. The Apostle Peter is the central figure on earth in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. In many ways, you can divide the book of Acts along that particular line. First, it was Peter and the church at Jerusalem. But then we notice, beginning in chapter 13, Paul takes the ascendancy, and we read about his missionary evangelistic campaigns, and we study about the features of all the good work throughout the empire that Paul was able to accomplish for the Lord Jesus Christ. But at this point... You'll notice that Peter came to a city known as Lydda in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 and following. And in that location, a wonderful series of events took place. First, you might note with me that Lydda was only positioned about 12 miles from Joppa. And Joppa is going to play a major role in just a moment. Prior to that, though, might I ask you to notice that while located in this place, Peter was allowed by God, and in fact, motivated to do some wonderful things. Powerful, miraculous matters. First of all, he healed a man named Aeneas, who had been sick for eight years. And yet the great power of God was manifested, overwhelming those in light of what God was accomplishing through Peter. But beyond that, note a woman. Many people believed at the scene of the healing of Aeneas. But there was a woman there. Her name, Tabitha. You and I often know her better as Dorcas. She was well known throughout that community as a sincere and heartfelt woman who invested her capabilities and talents for the benefit of so very many. She sewed garments and clothes and apparently gave them, or at least made them available. And so very many were moved and compelled by her generosity and her goodness and her spirit of interest in serving the Lord. She had been a motivating factor, it would appear, for so very many, but the fact is, she died. So strong is the language, I'd like to read it in there in Acts chapter 9. It says, beginning in verse number 36... Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good deeds, or rather good works and alms deeds, which she did. That language is very telling. Here was a lady who, it says, was full of good works. She truly had given herself for the service of the Master Now you and I know there were restrictions on what a woman could do, but look at how she did use what her talents were for the blessed benefit of so many because look at the next verse. "'And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men desiring him that he would not delay to come to them.' Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. We have an immediate reflection on the good work that Dorcas had done. You'll notice the widows were there and others. She apparently had been a strong force to help make sure they had the clothes that they needed. She made them garments. She made them those things necessary to maintain their warmth in the times of cold, to maintain their modesty and decency. Dorcas did this. Among other things, doesn't that remind us, whatever talent you and I have, may we remember God gave it to us. And He does intend that we utilize that for His glory, to carry out His will, to be a blessing to His kingdom. And may we always, among other things, use Dorcas to remind us of that truth. But this woman had passed away. And you could see what a motivating matter it was. They were saddened in Lydda. In fact, they were so saddened because this wonderful Christian woman and all the good works that she had done was now no longer with them. You'll notice that so moved were they that they knew Peter was not that far away, only 12 miles in haste. They desired to send to him, hopeful that something he might be able to do. The language again of verse number 38 ends like this. Desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. The sister whom they loved so much... And who had done so much for them? She's ill. She's sick. In fact, things don't look good. They were very serious. Please don't delay. Come at once. As you go back to the slide, you'll notice that the kind of description given of these ladies brings us to notice that the circumstances of those disciples, they sent two emissaries, two men, and they sent those men to Joppa, because Peter was there. Now just like Jonah a few moments ago in our study, Peter had a decision to make. God had told Jonah to leave those positions at that time and go to Nineveh. Jonah went to Joppa and went the opposite way. He didn't follow the the commission that God had given. This time, Peter was at Joppa. One more time, a commission, a moment is presented. Peter had to decide, will I go from Joppa to Lydda, or will I go from Joppa away from what God had wanted? And of course, as you and I close that slide, what a dramatic difference. Isn't it true that Jonah left Joppa going away from God, Peter left Joppa going to where God wanted him to go, And what a great thing developed. When he went, he raised, of course, Dorcas back to life. And the great power of God was seen and many people believed. The cause and the work of God was motivated, compelled, and moved in that region. But perhaps the last slide, let's pull all of that together. Highlighting not only some of the things we've said, Jonah had a heart that wasn't very receptive to the command of God. In fact, he didn't want to do what God said, and he didn't at first do what God said. On the other hand, Peter did what God said, and Joppa was the center city in both instances. The question for you and for me, are we more like Peter at Joppa or more like Jonah at Joppa? Do we at once hastily strive to follow that which God commands, bringing our will perhaps on occasion with stubbornness and bending it to what God wishes it to be? Or do we perhaps rationalize and run away from what God says? May we never forget, it did not turn out well for Jonah at first. He ended up spending some time aboard a ship in a storm. He spent some time in a great fish. He spent some time having to bring himself to go to a city fearful of what they may do to him. But all the while, let's look at some of these additional matters. Using them to challenge ourselves concerning our heart. Do you and I have a receptive heart? One that's desirous more than anything else of not only learning the will of God but doing it. In Matthew chapter 13, there's a picture given to us about the condition of the heart. You remember it well with me. A sower went forth to sow and four different soil types were described. One of them was a wayside soil. When the grain fell upon it, the birds of the air came and picked it up and it never even brought forth. When Jesus illustrated that, He described it as a person's heart was unreceptive and not only that... The Word of God never brought forth before anything had germinated. The second kind was stony ground. This particular soil, again, was such that it represented a person's heart. And just like that soil, it did initially allow a plant to come up, but it was much too rocky. And there wasn't nearly enough nutrients to sustain a healthy, living, vibrant plant. Jesus said in the same way, this person hears the gospel, but when persecution arises and when challenging times come, there isn't enough depth of earth to maintain it. Their heart isn't prepared for the kind of matters demanded of the gospel. And so sure enough, that plant withers and dies. Third kind of soil was thorny ground. This kind of soil, you may remember, was such that again... A plant came up, but it was infested with thorns. And those thorns choked out the plant, and it finally, of course, brought forth nothing. By the same token, that represented a person's heart. Oh, they may respond with joyfulness and respond in such a way that the gospel sounds wonderful. But the problem is, it's choked out by the cares of this life and the riches that so often the world presents. Just like those thorns choking out the Word, this person's heart was really more interested in riches and materialism. Finally, we come with joy to that good ground. The fertile soil, here that plant not only came up, but the soil was well prepared, the heart was right. And you'll notice Jesus said, some brought forth 30, some 60, some 100-fold. What about the heart of man? What about your heart and mine? Am I more like Peter at Joppa or Jonah at Joppa? Look at some of those additional verses as you and I contemplate that together. In Proverbs chapter 4 verse number 23, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You and I would do well to reflect with some care upon, What am I thinking about? and Am I preparing my heart for that kind of diligence and devotion and dedication that God demands of those that would be His servants? Beyond that, consider this one. Several times in the Word of God, we have impressed upon us what some beautiful responses are. Not only Peter at Joppa, but what about this one? In Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 8. In fact, there's a song in our book and we sing it from time to time. Here am I, send me, Isaiah said. Right just before that, God had asked a rather dramatic question. There's a lot of work to be done, Isaiah. Who am I going to get to do it? And Isaiah responded, Lord, hear my sin, me. Isaiah was so overwhelmed with the message and overwhelmed with the nature of the work that he himself was willing to respond, I'm the one. Later in Acts chapter 9 verse 6, on that road to Damascus, the man that you and I would come to know as the Apostle Paul, he had a conversation with a great master. And on that occasion, isn't it so? In verse number 6, it was Peter who replied, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He was willing to do anything the Lord asked of him. Sounds like Peter at Joppa, doesn't it? One more time, maybe we can notice some of those additional passages. Some taken from the Old Testament, some from the New. When it comes to the Word of God, how sweet it is. Sometimes we think about that kind of phrase, but doesn't it so aptly apply? In Jeremiah 15 verse 16, didn't the ancient prophet respond like this? Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. In Psalm 119 verses 5, or rather verses 103 and 104, "How sweet are thy words to my taste? Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The Prophet, the man David, wasn't talking about things like fruit. He was talking about the word of God. How sweet are thy words to my taste? Is God's word sweet to you and me? Peter, it seems, couldn't wait to get to the place wherein he could share it, Lydda, the beautiful truth of the gospel. On the other hand, Jonah turned and went the other way. Look at this verse with me in Acts 17, verse number 11. Speaking of that church in Berea. On that second missionary journey, Paul had had to leave Thessalonica in some very unfavorable circumstances. In fact, there were those there who were so antagonistic, and yet when he came to Berea, he said of them, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. The word of God was sweet to them. What a noble example the Bereans are. Sounds again like they were more like those Peter at Joppa than Jonah. One last observation in the lesson tonight will be yours. The same choice that Jonah and that Peter had, in principle, is the same kind of choice that you and I have. Joppa merely happened to be a place that occupied a role in each, in each one of those instances. But just like Jonah had the opportunity to make a response... To make a decision. So too did Peter. And they chose very differently. Doesn't that remind us? God does allow us to make the choice. He won't force anybody to serve Him. He'll force nobody to become a Christian. But oh, how He in- encourages, He implores, He insists. But He will let us make the final choice. Come unto me all that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That text of Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, perhaps reminds us of that scene in Jeremiah 6, verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. That has to be one of the saddest refrains in all the book of Jeremiah. God implored them, encouraged them, please come and take the water of life. But they wouldn't do it. You see, God lets them make the final choice just like He lets you and me. Tonight, maybe you have reached a position when you've reached the Joppa in your life. Will you heed the calling of the Master and do what Peter did at Joppa and serve the Lord? Or will you run away like Jonah tried to do? Rest assured, when it comes to God, you can run, but you cannot hide. He sees all, He knows all. He knows what you and I are doing in life, and He knows where we're headed. And if we're running from God, it's nowhere good. Tonight, if there would be one or more in this audience that would be in a position that you'd like to make a public response to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd be delighted to assist and to help and to encourage. In fact, the whole congregation would celebrate with you. May I say, if you've never become a Christian, it is an overwhelming birth into Christ that you need to experience. It doesn't happen by the say-so of man It happens by the declaration of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ. The church belongs to Him, only He can add you to it, Acts 2.47. If tonight there would be someone in that position, believe in Jesus with all of your heart, as the Messiah come from heaven. He did say in John 14.6, Except you believe I am He, you shall die in your sins. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Upon that, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have done that, and perhaps on your journey, you have faltered and failed in such a way that you've brought reproach upon yourself, upon the church, upon the Lord that died for you, don't continue in that state. Just like we noticed in terms of the Laodiceans this morning, they were admonished, repent. Revelation 3, verses 19 to 21. Tonight, Why don't you repent and make confession of those errors and let us pray to God on your behalf. You could leave this building tonight and pillow your head with comfort, with security, with the knowledge that you are a faithful child of God. If we could help you tonight in either of these ways, we'd be delighted to do it. The song of encouragement has been selected, and if we could help you now, why don't you let that be known at this convenient time while together we stand and while we sing.